Initiating launch sequence. Five, four, three, two, one. Hello and welcome to Ready for Launch, the show where I speak to founders about the process of getting their business off the ground. My guest today is Autumn Schultz. Autumn, welcome to Ready for Launch. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's nice to have another designer and founder on the show. So I'm really looking forward to our chat. Yes, same. It would be great if we could kick off with you telling us what is your business called and what do you think is unique about it? Sure. Um, my business is called Dibs. And uh, what makes us unique is we work with 60 plus uh, premium apparel brands. So you'll find these brands in Nordstrom or Saks. Some are direct consumer brands. And what we do is we find their excess inventory or imperfect apparel a home at a fraction of the cost for shoppers. So um, when I say excess inventory, as most folks know by now, you know, there's been a ton of supply chain issues and these brands are left with all of these uh, perfectly good products that um, they can't sell for lots of different reasons. And uh, there's not a lot of great liquidation options for them. So if you're a smaller direct-to-consumer brand, you may have a ton of you know, a certain product. Maybe it's a t-shirt, uh, maybe it's shoes, and uh, you can't mark it down too far because you train your shoppers to wait for sales. And so we work with these brands to help find these products um, a home through our private marketplace. So as a shopper, you can go and sign up for Dibs, and it's this private curated shopping experience. Right now we're focused on apparel, but we plan on expanding into other categories uh, pretty soon. Very cool. What makes it a private shopping experience, what you're offering? Sure. So on the consumer side, if I visit uh, thedibs.com, I sign up with my phone number. I share some of my preferences. So I might say, hey, I'm shopping for women's clothing. These are the sizes I'm interested in. Dibs ingests that information and we match you, the, the shopper, with product that we think you'll like based on the preferences you shared. We send those products to you via text message. So that's what makes it private. All of the products we send to you are premium apparel brands, uh, brands that you might be familiar with, some that might be new to you. You're able to click into a link and you can shop these products, like I said, at a fraction of the cost. So or a fraction of the cost that you find in Nordstrom or Saks, discounts range between 40% to 80% off MSRP. And so these products, um, they are private. Like I said, you can't search for them online. Our discounts are always uh, deeper than what you would find on the brand's website itself. Hmm, okay. So if I get a text uh, recommending me a product and... Mm -hmm. I come to dibs, like if it turns out that is not something I'm looking for, you know, a normal e-commerce site would send me, show me recommend like alternative products, similar products, you know, products that match. Do you have anything like that? Or is it kind of one item at a time trying to get that feedback for what that customer likes and doesn't like? Yep. We actually have two core uh, products or customer experiences. So the first experience I was sharing is what we call our drops. And so drops usually consist of 15 to 30 items of products that are deeply, deeply discounted um, that match your preferences. So say you might be in the market for 
new sweaters because it's cold out, um, we'll send you 15 to 38 sweaters. Alternatively, if say you're like, hey, I'm actually going on vacation, sweaters sound great, but I'm going somewhere warmer. I'm not in the market for sweaters. That's fine. What we do with your preferences is we create a personal shop for each shopper. So my preferences will be different than your pre uh, preferences, Ian, as they will be different than you know the other 5,000 shoppers that we have. Um, and so you can shop in your personal shop, which is a store curated to you. So there's no need to sift through products that don't fit uh, or aren't products that you're interested in. Got it. Interesting. Okay, so I can have a more traditional e-commerce online store experience, but I cannot. I will never see the full range of products that are available on the dibs. Yep, that's right. To everyone. Yes. Love it. Okay. I'd love to come back to talk about this side of the business more a bit later, but I always like to rewind at the beginning of these shows and, and talk a bit about what you were doing before you started this company and like how do you think that led you to creating this business? Yeah, uh, happy to rewind. So my background is in design within consumer tech. I've been in the tech world for over a decade, I want to say 12, 15 years at this point. And I've worked at organizations big and small on all sides of acquisitions. Some of the more notable startups, um, I've been a part of ShopRunner, um, which is a company that integrated into brands, websites, uh, 150 brands, actually. Uh, and they offered free shipping, free returns. They're now a division of FedEx. I used to also work at Orbitz, which is now Expedia, and a company called Trunk Club, which was acquired by Nordstrom. And so over the 10, 12 years that I worked there uh, at different stages, you kind of learn, you know, how to approach design in each phase. So the way you design for a startup is very different than what you design or how you design in a growth phase company versus how you design in a large corporation. And um, so I did that a few times over. I had a few other smaller startups in the mix as well. And, you know, before jumping into dibs, I was head of design at a travel company in, in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and I really enjoyed leading design. Um, I had a wonderful team of designers and um, we really helped each other through what is a pretty tough time for everyone, but also, you know, working in travel during a pandemic makes it a little extra stressful. I'd love to touch on something there. You know, you spoke about your team bringing each other through the pandemic and something I've never explored much in this podcast i remember i was working at a startup uh during the pandemic and i just joined just as the pandemic started and they they kind of introduced different rituals that i don't think any normal company would have at the time but there was a lot of communication around like how people were doing as part mm -hmm. of the daily st team stand-ups and i wondered did you have any like interesting or valuable tactics that you used with your team to help get through those difficult times? That is a great question. And yes, the rituals certainly did change. We initially were an in-person team, much like most companies. And we had a set of designers with different tenures 
at the company. So I was there for, gosh, probably eight months before the pandemic started and uh, was quickly hiring. And so the last person we had hired had been in the office for maybe a week or two at most before we had to close the office down. And as we closed things down and, you know, the pandemic was very unclear as to what was happening, what kind of impact it was going to have on travel, you know, the first few weeks, the first month, we did, we did see different reactions to the unknown. So one was like, there was a burst of energy from not just the design team, but everyone in the company to help get COVID protocols out onto the website, uh, make sure that things were up and running because now we're all remote. And we weren't really sure how to engage with each other because everything was so in-person before the pandemic started. Um, As we went on, there were many more emotional check-ins. So, you know, how are you doing? Are you getting any exercise? Are Are you getting sunlight? Are you taking care of yourself? And everyone's reaction to the pandemic was a bit different. You know, everyone's reaction to stress is quite different. We had folks that were really enjoying working from home. And this was a new, um, you know, backdrop in their life. And, you know, they got to wake up later and they got to stay up later and walk their dog and do things that they found very uh, energizing. Whereas there were teammates that were totally at a loss as to what to do. Like, how um, how do I conduct my life? I The rituals that they had in their day, every day, were, were now stripped out and gone. And any consistency they had disappeared. So they were having to establish new daily practices. And so those emotional check-ins, I don't even, emotional check-in is probably not even the right word. It was uh, just a, you know, a barometer on how folks were feeling. So each of us would check in with each other every day. Uh, We also created sort of like these get together games where I can think of like one where we used to do planks in the office, like the physical plank and whoever could plank the longest won. So we, we took that and did it virtually. We had these like 30 minute workout sessions that we asked people to participate in. There was obviously no pressure and the workouts were kind of silly, to be honest. They were jumping jacks and nothing too crazy, but enough to like break up the day and connect with someone. We also, uh, I think the last thing we had were we we created these coffee check-ins, uh, just a chat. And I think it it worked to some extent. It was nice to connect to people digitally. It wasn't quite the same, you know, like people crave human connection. And I think working remote, working distributed offers a lot of options and it's great for a lot of folks, but it was still challenging for, you know, for people who who want to get together and get the energy from, you know, coming together as a group. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for sharing those. Is your, is your current business remote? hybrid or or in office now? It's remote. Um, And it's remote for a few different reasons. One, we don't have to pay for an office. So (laughs) that makes it way easier uh, and way more approachable when you think about stretching your funding money. 
It also opened up the ability to hire anywhere in the country. So one of our success stories is we hired someone from Stitch Fix. She's our VP of merchandising and uh, she is not located in Chicago. Um, she's on the East Coast now, but had we you know, only focused in Chicago, we would have lost out on a lot of talent. Mm. Yeah, definitely. That's one of my personal favorite things about being remote as well is I moved from London, England, incredible tech hub to Vancouver, Canada, much smaller place. And I just found working remotely meant I didn't have to constrain the types of people I worked with down to the city I lived in mm-hmm. and have met just so many amazing people across Europe and North America working remotely to it's such a huge benefit. Yes. Yeah. It really does open up options for both the employer and folks who are exploring different roles and, um, you know, being Chicago based there, there's a decent tech scene, but it's certainly not West coast or East coast. So, um, as a designer, if I wasn't starting a business, I would be looking at positions all over the US. Yeah, cool. One more thing I wanted to touch on from your kind of backstory was you talked there about design for startups is very different to design for corporations uh, or like large enterprises. And I'd certainly agree, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on, for people who don't know, much about design like what is different about doing design for a startup versus a larger company sure yeah i think the best way to explain it is through my experience at working at a larger company so i used to work at orbits at the time it was maybe 800 to a thousand people maybe slightly larger than that um and it's certainly you know not a 500,000 or 100,000 person company. But where I'm going with this is Orbitz was a established business. And the changes you would make on a website were very incremental. In, as a big business, you don't take big swings. You take small incremental swings because you have a large customer base, because you have the traffic. So, you know, as a designer at Orbitz, I would make a change in the site and maybe it would impact conversion one to 3%. And that was considered success um, because you have such volume in traffic like that financially adds up pretty quickly as you make these small optimizations across the funnel. As a startup, you one, you don't have the luxury of millions of customers or a giant marketing budget, and you're still figuring out your product. So Uh, The name of the game in startups is speed. And um, as a designer, this was something that I struggled with. But, you know, you can't, like your design will never be perfect. You can't design for perfect. Um, What you design for is like something that you're maybe 70% proud of. And this is what I I keep in mind. Um, I used to take so much pride in pixel perfection and like thinking about every edge case and every nuance to an experience. And I I think that is good. I think you should think about an experience holistically and what types of users you're serving, but uh, you need to get it out in market 
and you don't have a ton of data to work with to make decisions. So you are creating data as you're you're producing something. You're doing V1 of a product. So you're going from zero to one, as opposed to when you're at a big company, you might be going from a established business with a business model that's like super tight. Um, and so you can make a lot more data informed decisions. Whereas if you're at the beginning stages of a startup, there is no data to inform your decisions. It's make something, get it out, get some feedback. And certainly if there are like riskier pieces of your business, getting user feedback before you ship it is very important. But often if you're working in a consumer business, if you can just build it and ship it quickly and you know, you're not spending a ton of time on polish um, or every edge case, you're in a better spot than, uh, than waiting until you're 100% proud of what you built. So mm. I, the, to sum that up, I think designers at startups need to understand when something is good enough, whereas designers at larger corporations um, need to think about every case and every use of of their product. That's a great summary. Uh, I really like the the seventy percent rule. It reminds me a lot of Muji's design philosophy, which uh, I think is they have eighty percent, but it's about being like they describe it as kind of eighty percent full. As well, mm -hmm. it's, it's like the idea that you should only eat till you're eighty percent satisfied. Because if you're one hundred percent full, that's like clearly you put too much food in your body, and it's uncomfortable. Uh, and they've kind of translated that to all of the design of their products. And if you've ever been in a Muji store, it's it's very simple. It's kind of wood and clear plastic essentially is their aesthetic. There's no frills, but everything has all the things it needs to function well. But none yes. of the things that it needs to function as the best on the market or the most luxurious, and to, by doing that, it's much more affordable. Um, yeah, it it's, it comes at such tension for designers, or I know it, it came with such tension for me because there is something inside of you that just wants to polish and tweak and finesse every piece of what you're doing, whether it is product design digitally or something that you're actually making. And it feels very counterintuitive as a maker, but it is truly important just to know when to, to call it. Yeah. And to your point of you're actually relying on releasing those designs to create the data at that point is there's no point trying to perfect it because you actually don't know what you're perfecting for yet. And exactly. by getting something simpler out earlier, you then learn, you can then learn like, okay, which part should we polish? Which part should we adapt? Yes, yes, exactly. And and to be clear, I'm I'm not advocating for shipping crap. <laughs> I think simple is good, um, but you don't want to ship anything that's like horrific because then you're not getting a read on whether or not someone likes the product. You're getting a read on your horrific experience, which is mm -hmm. not the same. Yeah. All right. It's probably time we started talking about uh, the dibs a bit more. Yeah. We, we we kind of briefly touched on you were working remotely for this travel agency. At what point did you know this idea for a new company 
form and like how did you go from being an employee to I'm going to start my own company yeah well um I'll bring it back to the pandemic so we were months into the pandemic and I'm sure you and the audience knows how boring <laughs> it, it got to be being stuck in your home and I could only play so much Animal Crossing, uh, which was the fad at the time, where I was like, I, I need to put my energy somewhere. And leading a design team was great. It was very rewarding, but it also came with some level of exhaustion, um, not knowing what would happen to the company and you know, folks working through their own stress. I think we all needed an outlet. And so as I was looking for a new place to put my energy after work, I came in, I got back in touch with some former colleagues at Trunk Club and they were exploring some ideas. Um, one had moved into venture, uh, the other two, one was in consulting and the other was uh, head of engineering at another tech company. And so we, we started seeing these transitions in e-commerce. Uh, one of the bigger ones was Shopify had become so huge. And initially when we heard of Shopify a long time ago, you, you kind of equated Shopify to working with smaller brands, folks that you know may have just been running a brand solo. Maybe there were a few folks, but it was certainly under you know 10 people powering a brand. But as years went on, Shopify got huge and bigger brands started platforming on Shopify Plus. And we're like, okay, that's very interesting. This is certainly not a certainly not what was happening 10 years ago. Everything was custom made for these larger brands. The influx of product and brands not being able to sell through product um, because of the the um, supply chain issues that was coming up more and more uh, because we had friendly brands in our network. And the other trend that we noticed that was substantially different than when we were working at Trunk Club was shoppers were more conscious as to what their dollar was supporting. So there was a lot of backlash against fast fashion. There was a lot of backlash to textile waste. And we were like, okay, well, these brands are sitting on excess inventory. They can't get rid of the product through traditional liquidation means. And when I say traditional liquidation, I mean liquidating through like a Nordstrom Rack or a TJ Maxx. Um, some reasons are, you know, they don't have the number of units to commit. So if you work with a TJ Maxx or a Nordstrom Rack, you have to commit thousands and thousands of units. And if you're a mid-sized brand, or maybe if you're a little smaller, you just don't have that amount of product. The other part of liquidation that makes it pretty challenging is if you liquidate, you only get pennies on the dollar, and that's pennies on the dollar from a cost of goods perspective. So you're losing a ton of money to get rid of this product, and um, you may not want your product showing up in a TJ Maxx or um, or Nordstrom Rack. Uh, it hurts your brand equity. So. The sad truth is like a lot of this excess inventory winds up in a landfill and it's perfectly good product. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, returns have a, a similar issue. So you may buy two pairs of shoes. Uh, you might try on a pair of shoes and you scuff it as a consumer. 
uh, if you go to return those shoes, those brands can't put it back into circulation because it's not at this pristine level. And so you have this inventory that is perfectly good. A scuff can be brushed out pretty quickly that just never makes it back into a shopper's hands. And it's pretty sad. It's not like brands are trying to be awful by throwing away product. Uh, often you'll find them donating product, but the, the sad truth with that is donations often wind up in landfills or overseas. Um, and so it becomes someone else's problem. So we, we learned more through our brands and like the, the rock and the hard place they were stuck between. And we went and interviewed a bunch of shoppers. Uh, I came in with a foundation of shopper knowledge just because I used to do user research before leading design and had interviewed hundreds and hundreds of shoppers in a past life. And we took their feedback both on the brand side and on the shopper side. And uh, I would go and I'd prototype ideas. And so working with the, the our my... <laughs> my after work crew, my moonlight crew, uh, each week we'd task each other with, you know, a certain set of things to do. And we'd come back, we'd meet up and um, take new information, iterate on it. I would design a prototype and whip something up. We'd get it in front of people, get some reactions. It was very, you know, um, design centric, uh, customer centric. We were always getting feedback from, from users or potential users. And so we did this, gosh, over the course of six to eight months and going through a few reps and iterations, we're like, okay, well, this is more than just a project to keep us occupied. Like people are showing real interest. Maybe we should take this a bit more seriously and and think about this as a, a real business. Let's think about the business model. Let's think about the economics. And so we we talked and we were like, well, someone needs to lead this team. And does anyone have an appetite to be CEO? And uh, none of us did <laughs> for, for lots of different reasons. Um, so we went and started looking for a CEO co-founder. And uh, the good news is my co-founder, Brock, who is CEO, was in our network. We did a bunch of basically like CEO dates. Uh, we'd go out to lunch with them. We'd talk about their skill set, their values. And I, I think the important thing for anyone starting a business or anyone starting a, a project together is looking for folks who have complementary skills, but the same values. And, you know, after meeting up with Brock a handful of times, I think we both realized, you know, we share the same values of humility and working hard and uh, being customer centric, um, but had complementary skills. So I would I would consider Brock a Swiss Army knife of a person. He does a little bit of everything, but the skill set we really needed him to bring in was you know thinking about our economic model and our, our business model, and um, having experience in startups in the past and uh, working with VCs in the past. We really needed someone to bring in that type of um, skill set. And so we paired up and we raised some money. Uh, we raised 1.1 million and we were off to the races. So uh, pretty crazy how <laughs> the project started as something to distract ourselves to becoming a real business. And now we've got 
actually, I have to correct myself from earlier, we have 70 brands as of today and um, thousands and thousands of shoppers. That's such a cool story. Um, your moonlighting time with, it sounds like the four, three or four of you, mm-hmm. like how much time were you, maybe just you personally, how much time per week were you spending on this for those six to eight months? Oh, man. Initially, probably just a couple of hours. Then as the months went on and we started seeing some sort of traction, and when I say traction, I mean brands would get really excited and offer some feedback as to what we should change on the the brand experience. And shoppers would offer feedback uh, and they would talk about how they're excited to use it. Um, I started committing more hours. So it went from a couple hours a week to 10, 15, 20 hours. And at, at that point, there was a moment, I was also eight months pregnant <laughs> when, <laughs> when I made the transition, which is its own story um, for, for whenever. But, uh, you know, when I was working on it 20 hours a week and pregnant, I was at this this fork in the road where I was like, should I commit to dibs and really see how this plays out? Because money was part of the conversation, but certainly it would be a big pay cut as, as it is for anyone who's starting a company or should I stick around at this travel company that was owned by booking holdings, which, you know, creates a very cushy, comfortable uh, maternity leave, which was also on my mind, um, being so close to having a baby. And um, my point of view is I either (laughs) need to keep working on dibs and I have to do it full time uh, because I cannot do a gazillion hours a week or I need to just stay on track at my full time gig and uh, I'm sure everyone understands the story here. I chose dibs and (laughs) (laughs) wound up committing 40 to 60 hours a week, every week, maybe even more working on the startup. I love that you just kind of forgot the quite a crucial point in this big decision that you were (laughs) eight months pregnant at the time. Yeah. That, um, you know, you're taking a, a big risk at a really kind of, dramatic point in your life like mid-pandemic uncertain future baby on the way Mm -hmm. what was it that convinced you to go you know left on this fork towards dibs and not right to the cushy maternity at the travel company yeah the way i think about a lot of decisions are i i usually think about it in this framework um if i were to die in 10 years, which is very morbid, would I be upset with myself if I didn't try? And entrepreneurship was always something that interested me. And I had worked at so many startups in the past that I felt like I had a decent base knowledge to go try it myself. I also knew that it is so rare to have things line up the way they did for me. So In this case, uh, we had an interested investor. We had a lot of qualitative feedback on the experience, both the brand and shoppers. And um, 
it's just rare to have like a team lined up there as well. So looking back at it, if I was, again, dying in 10 years, would I be happy with the decision I made? And for me, that decision was I should go try this because I don't get that. Most people don't get an opportunity like this generally. Um, but I certainly would be upset with myself if I didn't give it my best uh, because I can always go and get another design job. And that sounds very privileged because it is. And perhaps <laughs> as this as this is being recorded, you know, tech is in a very different stage and phase of employment than it was a year and a half ago. But I am pretty confident that if dibs didn't work out, and by the way, it is working out great right now. But if it didn't, um, I could always find another job. Yeah, I love that uh, framework. It's it's similar to something I use a lot in my life uh, too, which is about you have to do the important things now because you might you might not get another chance. Yes, exactly. The way you told your journey, like story, there it sounded like all these pieces just kind of fell into place. And I'd love to, you know, you've kind of, you needed something to do. You found a incredible collective of people with different skill sets who also wanted something to do. And you just started working on a product and the feedback was great. And then you decided to turn it into a company and got some investment. I'm guessing the real story wasn't that perfect. Were there some like major roadblocks or problems along the way that you had to deal with? Oh, oh yes. I mean, so many. <laughs> so um, to start with, you know, everyone's head in this project where it was a bit different because folks were in different spaces in their life. So what was a team of four um, became a team of myself and Brock. Um, just because you know, not everyone wanted to quit their full-time job or they had a setup that they really loved at that point. And so some folks you know, continue to participate and that's great. And some folks take a little more of a back seat and that's fine too. Um, another major hiccup, and uh, I don't even know how to weave this into the story, um, in, in a great way, but after we raised money or as we were raising money and a week after I had quit my full-time job, I was on a walk and I was crossing the street. So as a pregnant person, you don't have a lot of opportunities for exercise and walking was my biggest form of exercise. Uh, I was crossing the street and a cargo van hit me and uh, I was dragged under the van for a quarter of the block um, and wound up in the hospital for a month and wound up with severe head trauma, um, a collapsed lung, uh, all of my ribs on my left side broke, a few broken vertebrae um, and a bunch of other things that break when you get run over by a, a cargo van. And it certainly <laughs> put a, um, a pause on how everything was going. We had a ton of steam and, you know, suddenly that 10 year projection of like, would I be upset with myself if I didn't try something became the, the window was much closer. Uh, the good news is 
I'm fine now, uh, or as fine as I can be. And my baby survived and he is fine, but it certainly was unexpected. And um, that was something to work through because uh, Brock and I were very focused on building the team at that point, And no one expects a massive life event like that. Yeah, that's traumatic. Um, how did you... How did you bring yourself back? You like you must have had to have stopped just being stuck in the hospital for nothing else with the collapsed lung. Was there like what was that journey like? Getting re- feeling ready to keep taking, you know, putting your it, you've got to put a lot of energy into a startup, right? And so, how do you bring yourself from huge accident to okay, I I can run this business again? Yeah. Well, certainly I was not participating for <laughs> for a couple of weeks. Um, I was in ICU and uh, came out of ICU to the trauma unit. But I, I will say that being locked in a hospital, uh, not locked, I, I was in a hospital bed and um, you, you just need a distraction. And I'm not saying this is the case for everyone or that everyone should do this, but work was a, a happy distraction for me because it is incredibly painful to recover from an accident like that. And in my situation, the pain medication was limited because I was pregnant. Uh, they just don't give you the same level of pain medication as they would as a non-pregnant person. And watching TV all day or sitting in my hospital bed is you just need a place to put your mind. And so I obviously was not working 60 hours a week on my startup, but I was working on it um, while I was in the hospital. I I can't tell you how effective I was. Um, I'm sure my my co-founders were like, okay, Autumn, whatever you turn in is fine. (laughs) But but at least they were there to entertain me. and so I would work on designs and I'd work on like creative briefs, nothing too crazy. Uh, and yeah, I, I don't know how to like wrap up the story in a, in a positive way other than sometimes you need a place to put your mind and whether or not you're being effective is TBD, but working was a nice distraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess it was also, you know, this wasn't, this was a project you chose to do to like improve your life at one point. And maybe that doesn't seem so terrible to continue doing that when you don't have anything else to do because you're stuck in hospital. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It, it's not like I was working for a company that I, you know, was uninterested in and I had to go turn in some timesheets. I, Joint. I started this company with others because I was really excited to work on it, and it does make quite a difference. Yeah. Did the maybe like the passion and the approach you took to it feel different once you had gone from this is my evening project to get me through the pandemic to this is my livelihood. I'm founding this business. I think it goes in waves. So once I was past the accident and past the haze of having a newborn, 
you know, in, in times where you're dealing with a lot of life changes, certainly the passion and excitement is there, but it is muddied by the life things that you need to do. And, you know, uh, for me, there was a lot of joy in having my baby. But once we were past that, you know, I was excited to get back to work. And the excitement, like I said, comes in waves. When we ship something and you see a lot of traction, you're like, oh, wow, okay. You get really jazzed and you want to invest even more. And when you have wins, like that excitement grows, but you know, with anything, you you don't win all the time, or you don't see, you know, the chart is not always moving up and to the right. And at times, you know, your experiment might fail, and it might fail a couple times. That energy can be difficult to drum up when when you have a couple losses. Um, but I would say overall, it's much more energizing to work on your own project or your own company than for a company where you might feel like a cog in the wheel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of these, you know, shipping and wins and losses, I think you just came out of beta a couple months ago. Uh, what was the goal of that beta? Like, and what did you learn from it that you then felt confident enough to say, we're not in beta now, you know, this is a, a real product? Yeah. So we um, we initially started beta right after this really rough proof of concept. And I, I'm bringing up the proof of concept because I just want to share how hacky things were at the beginning. So our proof of concept, we had opened up our own Shopify store and quite literally curated everyone's text message drop. So every the drop being that we have 15 products in that moment that we'll send to a customer based on their preferences. And we send that through text message. So myself and a few others would pick out products by hand, uh, well, by hand virtually, and then send it to each one of our proof of concept members. And so what we learned in the proof of concept was that's a lot of work. But are people willing to open up a text message and shop via a text link? Uh, And that was the first thing we wanted to prove out. And the good news is, yes, they were. And so we took that proof of concept and we evolved it into a beta, which was 500 shoppers. And we had about 30 brands, um, brands that at the time we weren't charging a take rate. We were just like, hey, try us out or we want, you know, we want you to be part of this experiment. Uh, are you willing to do that? And are you willing to add some products to to our mix? And they said yes. And then we sourced shoppers in a few different ways in beta through Reddit, through um, paid advertising, the paid advertising more so from the perspective of testing messaging, and then certainly friends and family. And in our beta we again started with drops, but instead of trying to figure out are people willing to purchase through a text message, we wanted to figure out are we sending the right products? Are we sending enough products? And what kind of feedback can we get qualitatively to make this experience much better? And so the, what we did is we built um, these drops where it matched people to products. We put together a very basic matching uh, technology. And 
we would send out these drops and it was 15 to 30 products based on those folks' preferences. And at the bottom of those 15 to 30 products, it was a list of products, we had this open field of feedback. And so people would constantly submit feedback. In addition to that, we created a Facebook group of beta members so they could offer feedback on everything we were sending. And so we would send this drop multiple times a week because we wanted to understand what is the right cadence. We would send the drop with just a few products to understand, are we you know, sending enough? Are we sending too much? Um, and so the feedback we were getting was like, hey, I love that you sent me these products, but I am actually in the market for something different. And so we took that as a note. Um, or some folks were sharing that I'm not familiar with these brands. Can you tell me a little more about them? So we worked on that. Uh, these price points feel high for a brand that I don't know. So we worked on that. And once we gathered that feedback, we iterated on the drop experience, making it a bit more like a flash sale. Uh, we, at this point, we were able to bring on more name brand brands that I don't think I can share publicly, but if you were to sign up for dibs, these are brands that you would recognize. Not all of them, but several of them. Um, we also took that feedback and created the personal shop, which is what I mentioned earlier in the show, a shop that is tailored to you and your preferences. So you can get a drop, which are deeply discounted products, um, or you can shop your personal shop, which are discounted, but uh, it gives you a little wider of an aperture of products to choose from. So drops being 30 products or fewer, uh, super discounted, theme-based, maybe brand-based, and then your personal shop, everything in our catalog that matches your preferences. Hmm. How do the logistics work with the inventory? Are you taking all of this clothes from the the companies you work with or are they they doing the shipping like and you're kind of feeding them orders what what does that look like yes so very much the latter we drop ship everything everything is fulfilled through the brand so we don't actually carry any inventory we are purely the the tech piece in between so a user signs up for a private marketplace if they purchase something that brand goes and fulfills it now that brand gets that customer's information. And so for the brand, the benefit of working with us is that we take a small to relatively like a decent amount uh, of every purchase. So we have a take rate, um, but they're also acquiring a customer for far less than what they would pay on you know, Facebook or TikTok or Instagram. And far less than throwing their clothes away or yes. selling them at a loss. Yes, exactly. Hmm, interesting. Why do you, you know, now that you're launched, how do you plan for the future and like, you know, your next six months, 12 months, two years, maybe what, what do you do to figure out what's coming next? Oh, man, this is always so hard. Um, I can tell you what I'm excited about in this moment. But the reality of a startup, as you know, is things change so quickly. So whatever I share, I caveat with, you know, ask me in a month and it might be entirely different. But in six months, I hope that we're able to 
start moving new or start bringing in new categories. So an example would be um, perhaps soft home decor, like sheets and um, things that are that tend not to be too expensive to ship, pillows, things like that, uh, into the mix. The other thing that gets me really jazzed is bringing in pre-loved product into our catalog. And some things that we are in the very early stages of exploring is we know that our shoppers um, think about what their dollar is supporting. So they're values-based, they're, they're conscious of what their money goes towards. Um, how do we sell products in any stage of its lifespan, whether it's brand new excess to pre-loved to upcycled? Can dibs be the one-stop shop for a product in in any point of it. So we prevent products from going to the landfill as much as possible. Would that um, like pre-owned side of things mean you're now no longer working with established brands, but working with individuals who are reselling or is, are these like the brands themselves want to get into that and you can help them uh, facilitate that? Um. It would likely mean that we are working with companies that already work with these brands. So if you look at Dagny Dover, for example, uh, direct consumer bag company, they have a pre-owned tab on their website. And so their customers upload pictures of their Dagny Dover bags. And uh, I can either choose to buy a brand new bag on their normal.com or uh, Dagny Dover can direct me to their pre-loved section. And our thought is, you know, these brands are already taking ownership of their pre-loved products. They, they want to make sure it stays in their ecosystem, but um, you know, there may be a world where we can port in those products virtually in the same way that we bring in those products from the brand uh, into the, private marketplace that we already have stood up yeah interesting do you have a sense do you have any ideas or predictions of the biggest challenges you think you'll face in the next year or two oh my gosh um customer acquisition is always a challenge i think we've unlocked uh an interesting strategy by working with brands as a way of driving customer acquisition and so we are Working on our growth uh, portion of the business, so partnerships, uh, we certainly have paid in the mix, but are there more ways that we can bring people in the door uh, that are qualified? When I say qualified, like, I mean, are the folks that we are getting to sign up for dibs interested in the types of products that we're selling, and are they finding value in what we've put together? Um, you can always, you know, run a... Um, a sweepstakes and get a bunch of signups, but those signups may not actually be of value. Um, so that is one hurdle I know we are working on currently and uh, will be probably forever working on. And then thinking about what other integrations we can spin up that seems like a good trade-off between time and uh, value. So maybe it's WooCommerce that we start uh, integrating with. Maybe it's 
the resale as a service um, tools that are out there. Uh, there's plenty of things for us to explore, and it's just figuring out which one is the right one at the right time. Very cool. Good luck with all of that. We are. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a challenge yeah we're pretty much out of time so I, I just want to ask my my two final questions i ask everyone on this show the first is what is something unique you would never have learned without starting the dibs oh my gosh i think i know way more about financials than i would have ever known if i did not start a business i had always had aspirations of understanding business better, but I had, I never had a real reason to push myself to do it. And now it's very important. I wouldn't say I am the most skilled when it comes to figuring out unit economics, but I certainly know way more about it now than I did two years ago. Nice. That's a useful life skill. Mm -hmm. Final question then. Where can our listeners go to find out more about you and the dibs? Yep. Um, you can visit thedibs.com or you can follow along uh, at Shop the Dibs on Insta. I would highly recommend everyone go to our website and sign up. We're always running specials, so uh, please give us a try. And uh, if you have feedback along the way, please pass it along. Our, our team is always listening. Awesome. I will share those links in the show notes. Autumn, thank you so much for coming and sharing your story on the show. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Same here. Hey, listeners. Ian here again. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, it would mean so much to me if you subscribed or gave us a review on your favorite podcasting app. And maybe tell a friend.